Kevin Feige making the Marvel Cinematic Universe what it is is one of the great producerial success stories of the modern age. Hi, de ho, you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Welcome to Radio Film School, a radio documentary anthology series about filmmaking, cinema, and the pursuit of passion. Every week, we bring you personal, passionate, and sometimes provocative stories from filmmakers and artists all over the globe. Stories that will help you mature as an artist and find more fulfillment in your craft and career. Now, last year this month, I started what I hoped would be this amazing, inspirational, educational, and thoroughly engaging multi-part miniseries about the history of superheroes in cinema. Our first outing was actually quite good, if I do say so myself. It was a look at adaptation, and it premiered on May 31st, 2016. So this follow-up is a tad later than I had hoped, but as they say, better late than never. I think you will find the wait worth it. Not that you've been waiting on pins and needles for part two or anything, but I think I will definitely have at least two more episodes in the series, including a look at the increase in racial and gender diversity in superhero movies, as well as an historic look at superhero movies in general. Of course, I reserve the right to change my mind on that. Now, before we get started, I want to give a super duper thanks to Lens Pro to Go. They have sort of been like the sunlight to the radio film school Superman. So please give them some love. If you need to rent photography or video gear in the U.S., if you want top-notch customer service from working filmmakers and photographers, if you want simple, affordable pricing that includes two-day UPS shipping, then head on over to LensProToGo.com and use the offer code RADIO to save yourself 10%. We thank LensProToGo for their wonderful support. And be sure to hang around after the end credits as we have a fun bonus section discussion theorizing as to why Captain America was almost able to lift Thor's hammer. Now, without further ado, Avengers Assemble. Wow, that was really corny. Hope you're ready. It'll be here any minute. Is that a rifle? You don't know what a rifle looks like? It's just swords were your thing and guns were mine. But I guess we're both doing guns now. I just didn't know that. Well, that's intense. This past weekend saw the U.S. premiere of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And as expected, it blew up at the box office with a $145 million domestic opening. Worldwide, it has already grossed over $420 million, and it's well on its way to becoming another billion-dollar-plus box office hit. Now, Guardians of the Galaxy is in many ways a fluke, an anomaly. Well, at least it should be when you look at it on paper. When the first movie premiered on August 1st, 2014, I think it's safe to say that the average moviegoer had no idea who these characters were. I mean, talk about the fringe of the Marvel Comics universe. They were not exactly household names like a Spider-Man or even the X-Men. I mean, a talking, gun-toting raccoon who's the best friend of a walking tree, a wise-cracking, space-hustling sort of Han Solo slash Jim Kirk mashup who's the son of an alien. Even in the comics, there are various incarnations of this gang. 
Now, add to that, it was written and directed by James Gunn. His 2006 directorial debut, Slither, although respected by cinephiles, was a box office disappointment. His biggest directed film prior to Guardians was 2010's Super. I think it's safe to say he was best known for his writing. Now, undeniably, after the success of the first Guardians movie, and now with this success, he's most likely sealed himself as an A-list director. That first Guardians movie was part of what's known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU. The film was part of Phase 2. Now, as you probably know, the phases represent the groups of MCU-connected movies that lead up to each of the Avengers sequels. We're currently in the middle of Phase 3, which will culminate in next year's Avengers Infinity War. I think the most amazing thing about both the critical and commercial success of the MCU is that most of the characters are arguably not the most popular, well-known comic book heroes among those who weren't already rabid fans. I mean, Iron Man, Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Doctor Strange. You could even argue that Thor and Captain America, although somewhat known, weren't household names. You want to know about two superheroes that were household names? Two heroes who have had countless TV shows, cartoons, and even movies made about them? Two superheroes who, unless you were born to the Aborigines in the Australian Outback, you know exactly who they are? One of them is and the other was that's right, Superman and Batman. On March 20th, 2016, for the first time in cinematic big screen history, the two were going to go mano a mano in the fight of the century. Now, by all accounts, this should have been the highest grossing movie perhaps of all time. This is a movie that should have given Avatar a run for its money. I mean, come on, Batman fighting Superman? That's freaking crazy! And add to it arguably the third most popular superhero of all time, Wonder Woman? This was a no-brainer. A surefire formula for a two-plus billion dollar box office bonanza. As of this taping, Batman vs. Superman's worldwide box office, after 14 months, is a measly $872 million. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's crazy to call that measly. I know that $800 million is a lot of money. But come on. You know it and I know it. This movie should have done better. It not only had a disappointing box office, but as of this taping, its Rotten Tomatoes ranking, you know, which is a sort of aggregate average of all the critics' reviews, is only 28%. Wow. And sadly, the other films in the DC Extended Universe, or DCEU, namely Man of Steel and Suicide Squad, have also performed less than hoped. So what's going on here? How has Marvel been able to take second and even third tier comic book characters and turn them into critical and commercial juggernauts? and a cinematic universe led by the most popular superheroes in the history of superheroes in the entire world can't crack the highly coveted billion-dollar worldwide box office mark. Well, much has been debated as to why this is the case, and today we're going to add to that discussion. But, as always, 
we want to bring a point of view that can give you a perspective and a lesson that you can apply to your own craft as a filmmaker and content creator. And maybe, just maybe, you'll hear a perspective or two you didn't quite expect. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Short Ends, Superheroes in Cinema Part 2. No, Phase 2. Nine years ago this month, May 2nd, 2008, the Disney-owned Marvel Studios launched the first movie in a string of films which would mark the start of what's now known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU. The movie, of course, was Iron Man. Tony Stark, now you work for me. What are you building, Stark? I don't think anyone expected that movie to become the success that it was. Nor could anyone have predicted the machine that would become the MCU. And the captain of that ship, the man with the mission, the person who is credited with being the mastermind and visionary leader who has led these movies to a combined $10-plus billion is Kevin Feige. A graduate of USC's prestigious film school, Kevin worked many years as a producer on such films as The X-Men, X2, Blade, Daredevil, The Fantastic Four, Spider-Man 2, and many others. As you can tell from just that short filmography, Kevin has seen his fair share of both box office bombs and breakouts. Now, last year during season one of the show, of my show, Radio Film School, I had an opportunity to interview Robert Meyer Burnett. Robert is a DGA director, editor, producer, comic book aficionado, and co-host of the popular weekly YouTube series Collider Heroes. Robert is actually good friends with Brian Singer, the director of the X-Men and X2 films, as well as the producer of First Class, and Brian was director of Days of Future Past. So between Robert's love of comics, his connections in the industry, and his own 20-plus year experience in Hollywood, he offers insight into this discussion worth heeding. I think what's really interesting now is you look at Marvel, and we talk a lot about this on Collider Heroes, that you've got Kevin Feige. You've got a very strong producerial hand over at Disney who cut his teeth working on Brian's X-Men and Daredevil movies. So he's seen what works and what doesn't work. And the way David O. Selznick was one of the great producers of yore, Kevin Feige making the Marvel Cinematic Universe what it is, is one of the great producerial success stories of the modern age. Because, as evidenced by Captain America's Civil War, for a, a film like that, it's such a satisfying experience at the movies. Just terrific. Yeah. I was recently listening to uh, one of the Clutter episodes and Campia, John Campia, who's one of the, he was the founder of it and now he's doing other things, but he's still frequently a host on the show. He made a comment which I thought was interesting with regards to you know, sort of like what's happening with the Warner Brothers slate of superhero films and the Marvel slate of superhero films. Basically, he thinks Warner Brother needs someone like a Kevin Feige. We talk about that all the time. One of the problems is Hollywood is very reactionary because hits come out of not nowhere, but but hits are are not usually expected. But now, when something really successful happens, everybody wants to jump on that bandwagon right. and emulate that success. And obviously, for for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the place you'd look at DC to compete. 
And what's really interesting is that Nolan's Batman movies were an incredible feat, uh, very successful. Batman Begins was was a success, a moderate success. It brought back a more moribund brand in Batman to the movie theaters. It's good. And Dark Knight becomes one of the great uh, superhero movies ever made. And Dark Knight Rises is problematic as some of it is it also made it a ton of money right so they were competing it's just they weren't trying to make a collective universe this was the nolan verse and then right Zack snyder they bring on Zack snyder he's like oh we did 300 together you did Watchmen. we did, did sucker punch whatever that was whatever we'll give you man of steel and they try and make it a, a certain way and it, it you know people a lot of people a lot of fans didn't like it i really liked it because i thought of it as a first contact science fiction movie but yeah the problem is when you don't have a strong uh, a guiding principle behind what it is you want to do other than become successful, make money, and, and take some of that Avengers money and put it in the shareholders' uh, hands over at Warner Brothers. But how do you do that? You need somebody that knows how to do that. And I don't think Zack Snyder, while I like some of his movies, I don't think he – he needs a strong producer. He needs somebody with that clear vision. And just watching Batman v Superman, it's like that film is all over the place. And it's drawing from many different famous comic book sources. And if you want to see a, a great contrast, if you look at Batman v Superman uh, as opposed to Civil War, Civil War has so many more characters and every one of those characters is serviced by the script. Every character has great moments. Whereas Batman v Superman... You've got three main characters, three of the, the cornerstone superhero characters in all of 20th century pop culture, and they're not, they're not used well. You need somebody that understands how to use these characters, and Kevin Feige absolutely does. So our first lesson is we need to have a vision and a plan to execute on that vision. Feige knows these characters and has a producerial mind that can see the big picture. And that actually segues nicely into lesson number two. Actually, I, I remember reading an article about this very subject. That is Mr. Adu Black, or as I like to affectionately call him, Mr. Blockman. You had to have listened to my Westworld podcast where he was a co-host to get their reference there. But Adu is another huge comic book fan and a production coordinator on The Simpsons. And Adu is a man with no shortage of opinions. Since I know he's a huge comic fan... I wanted to get his take on the topic. The creative team at Marvel is set up so that all Marvel movies and properties sort of tie into each other. So just like in the comic books, you will have, even though it's a separate book, like you will have Captain America and Spider-Man and X-Men, but Occasionally in issues, they would cross over into each other's storylines. And so Captain America may be going, you know, through Spider-Man City or Daredevil and Spider-Man may cross paths. And so Marvel has set it up so that even though each film may have a different director, they are always in communication with each other. So they kind of know what the other movie is doing and what direction they want to go in. Whereas DC, they're kind of all independent productions and none of them 
are you know peter doesn't really know what paul is doing so while you have the batman movies with christopher nolan which have been you know very successful for dc and i think the dark brooding environment and setting and characters fit into that world but i don't think you can have that movie after movie after movie and expect audiences to continue to come out i think marvel is a little more varied you know, you have Spider-Man, you have Captain America, then you have a Civil War movie. It just goes to show it further illustrates how the Marvel formula has really taken a hold of the movie-going audience. This concept of the interconnection and the interrelatedness of the MCU movies is largely credited with the success of the franchise. I wouldn't say offhand that the MCU was the first instance of a cinematic universe where movies from different franchises or different storylines are either directly or tangentially related to one another. You could argue that many of Tarantino's movies are in the same cinematic universe. There are character references in a number of his earlier films like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and even Kill Bill that imply they're in the same universe. But without a doubt, it's the success of the MCU that has spawned many more movie universes to follow, including two monster universes, Godzilla and King Kong in one, and Tom Cruise's upcoming The Mummy kicking off another, and even horror genre flicks like The Conjuring are getting into the action. There's a small cynical part of me that thinks all of this universe creation is kind of silly, and it speaks exactly to what Robert was mentioning earlier, that Hollywood loves to emulate and copy what it sees. But I'll reserve my judgment for these films when I see them all come together. Actually, that sounds like a perfect topic for a future Radio Film School episode. I'll have to make a note of that. Cinematic universes aside, there's another aspect of the MCU characters that offers perhaps a simpler, more basic reason for their success. But I think Marvel's characters initially are just more relatable. That's Javon Phillips, an online producer and writer for the Los Angeles Times calendar section. Prior to that, Javon wrote for Variety magazine for seven years. Now, my connection with Javon wasn't the best, so I apologize in advance for the crappy audio. I contemplated not even including this, but I felt like what he said was too important to leave out. I'll just say that, that not even getting into the filmmakers or the filmmaking or, or anything like that, I think that their characters and the flaws that they put in them are just a little more relatable than, than even the, the trinity of DC in terms of Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman. I think Jeff Johns is a master storyteller. Now, here he's referencing Jeff Johns, a comic book and television writer and the president and chief creative officer of DC Comics. Last year, he was brought on to co-run the DCEU and be the creative visionary, in essence, DC's Kevin Feige. The downside to Johns is that he doesn't have the movie-making pedigree of Feige, so there is still some doubt as to whether he can turn the ship around. But Javon has hope. If they can go different ways with these characters and show the humanity in them instead of how super they all are, I think it'll be fun. I think he's he is the person to do that because, you know, his whole rebirth thing in comics was about supposedly getting back to the core of all of the DC characters. Why this character is 
doing what he or she is doing. And um, that's hopefully what he's going to be bringing to the, uh, the DC Cinematic Universe. If you go back to the best written comic books, they're written like good screenplays. Here's Robert Meyer Burnett again, offering deep insight into this idea of the importance of story and character. So many times when I worked in development where people would just frown upon comic books as source material and they would go, oh, novels are much better. And I'm like, no, it's all how you approach them. If you approach a comic book and look down on it and don't take it seriously, you're going to get like Halle Berry's Catwoman. And I think that a lot of the time, the fact that it's, oh, it's just a comic book has been misinterpreted at the studio level at how much thought needs to be put into the scripting and the characters and everything. So there are all these factors that have contributed to the success of the MCU. Kevin Foggy's command and respect of the source material combined with a rich knowledge of the production process, a development of character and story that feels real and authentic, despite the fact that you're dealing with hammer-wielding gods and billionaire playboys flying in metallic suits of armor, and the competition between the MCU and the DCEU is one that dates back well before the movies ever existed. Just like the rivalries of Mac versus PC or Canon versus Nikon, there was Marvel versus DC. So, regardless of how successful either of these universes are, you can expect to see and hear a healthy debate over to which is better. But this wouldn't be a Radio Film School episode without offering a third perspective to this whole debate. One that doesn't so much speak to the success of the studios in the development and promotion of these films, but rather a look at how we as an audience approach these works of art in the first place. And who better to offer a poignant perspective off the beaten path than my good friend, colleague, and documentary filmmaker, Brett Culp. Now, as you recall, Brett has garnered some nationwide acclaim for his documentary film, Legends of the Night, a film that looks at the stories of people facing life-threatening illnesses who are inspired by the story of Batman. As such, his audience naturally turns to him to get his take on superhero films, in particular the DC films. And I loved his rather poetic disposition on this whole discussion. I put out a video recently that was my review of Suicide Squad. and. I said at the very beginning of this review, because I didn't think, I don't say it in the review, but I didn't think Suicide Squad was that great of a movie. I didn't like it that much, frankly. But essentially, I had this audience of people that wanted to know what I thought after Batman vs. Superman. So, you know, they loved my Batman vs. Superman review, so these DC people want to hear my Suicide Squad thing. So I said at the very beginning of this review, this new review of Suicide Squad, I said, if you want to hear a critical analysis of this movie, there are tons of those on the internet. The internet's full of them. Mm -hmm. So go somewhere else. I'm not here to tell you whether or not this is a good movie or a bad movie or whether or not it should be seen or you should see it. I'm just here to say we've watched it. It's an experience we had. So let's find some light in it and let's dwell on that. As soon as I watch that, I'm sitting at my editing you know, desk at my office watching myself say that in the movie review. I'm like, yeah, no other movie critic probably on the planet brought that spirit to it. Right. Their spirit was, 
is this good cinema according to the standards I have in my mind about what good cinema should look like? And I'm going to compare it to that standard. And if it falls short, I don't like it. And if it holds up, I do like it. And I'm bringing a very different perspective even to the analysis of film, period, which is I'm not interested anymore about whether or not it's quote-unquote good cinema. I'm interested in is there anything of value in this story that can lift us up as people? Mm -hmm. Because we're going to experience it anyway, so millions of people are going to watch it, so let's talk about the good stuff. And I just didn't even realize in the past couple of years that's what makes me unique as a human being is my desire and predisposition to look at art and stories that way and that's my voice for me i think more critics should find what it is that they're interested in and stop talking particularly some of these YouTube guys that really don't have much of a following anyway. If you work for Slash Film or The Hollywood Reporter or you know one of these big things, fine. You do what everybody expects you to do. But if you really want to carve out a unique niche, find your voice that's different than just the same old rehash of what these other critics are, are what their perspective is and what they're trying to figure out and bring, bring your voice to it. And you know, at the end of the day, I'm finding that that is much more valuable in the world. So instead of trying to decide whether or not Batman vs. Superman is a good movie or a bad movie, I'm much less interested in that discussion anymore. Is this good or is it bad? Am I a lover or a hater? Who cares? I, I, that's, that's not valuable to the world to have that discussion anymore. Let's just talk about what it means to you. And if it didn't mean something to you, fine. Move on and find something that does. Wow. That comment really rocks me to the core. Not only because it gives me a fresh perspective with which to look at all art, but frankly, it's a damn good perspective on how to approach and look at life. If I can be so bold and vulnerable as to recount a discussion I recently had with a friend and counselor of mine, he said to me essentially, what stories are you telling yourself about this particular issue you're dealing with? Are they the truth? Is there another possible truth? What would your world and life look like if you accepted one of these other truths? And I gotta say, Brett's comment kind of reminds me of this discussion. What would our enjoyment and our creation of art look like if we approached it in this manner? Would we come away from it better people and more enlightened? Would we enjoy it and life more? I guess what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter why the MCU is kicking the butt of the DCEU. At least not from the perspective of those of us who are consuming this content. And I hazard to guess that if you approached your art as a creator in the same way, where you look for the light that exists in all art, you will become better at creating art that connects and resonates with your fellow man. And in the end, isn't that why you got into this in the first place?
Radio Film School is a production of Dear Jimmy Media and is a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a small collection of pop culture podcasts that cover topics from your favorite television shows to meditation and health to podcast production. And if you're a fan of comics, definitely be sure to check out the new Podcastica collaboration with the popular Bald Move Boys on an unofficial podcast about FX's critically acclaimed new superhero series, Legion. Another great Podcastica show about comics is Under the Comic Covers. These and other terrific shows can be found at podcastica.com. Cornucopia of podcasty goodness. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org and Kevin McLeod's incompetech.com. Links to tracks are in the show notes. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe in iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. Let us know what you think about the MCU versus DCEU. Are you a Marvel fanboy or a DC fanboy? Or fangirl? You can also find the show on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and our RSS feed is on every blog post for each episode. Now, NAB ended just a little over a week ago, and as expected, there are a whole bunch of new gear announcements. But please, don't go into debt or break the bank to buy the latest and the greatest. Instead, hop on over to Lens Pro to go and rent the photo and video gear you need from working filmmakers and photographers who can help you make the best rental choices. All of their prices include two-day shipping, so there are no shipping cost gotchas at the end of the checkout process. And if you use the offer code RADIO, you'll save yourself 10%. That's lensprotogo.com. We thank them for their support. Another great way you can support the show is by becoming a Daredreamer FM Premium member. Premium membership helps keep the show going and putting out great weekly content. For just a few bucks a month, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts, and other great products and services. Just go to daredreamer.fm slash join to learn more. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamerron, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Remember that funny scene in Avengers Age of Ultron where everyone was hanging out at Tony Stark's and trying to lift Thor's hammer? One by one, they try and fail. Then Steve Rogers gives it a go and just barely starts to move it. The camera cuts to this classic look of anxiety on Thor's face as he sees what he knows is impossible. The audience laughs as Thor sighs in relief when Cap is not able to lift the hammer. So Javon Phillips and I got into a fun discussion about why we think Captain America was able to almost lift it, but not quite. Oh, and it should go without saying that there are some minor spoilers in this discussion for Avengers Age of Ultron. If I remember correctly, when, when Superman used it in the JLA versus Avengers book, you have to also have great need to be able to pick up Thor's hammer. Yeah, you have to be worthy. Someone like Captain America should be able to pick up the hammer. But, you know, I was just saying that he couldn't, it, there was no great need at that particular moment when they're sitting around in a party uh, at a high rise. But, you know, if, if if during battle, you know, Thor fell or something like that, someone like Cap should be able to pick up the hammer. Right, right. I, I think that that's the biggest point. One touch I did love in that scene, and one could argue that this goes against your theory, but nonetheless, I think I love the way it works uh, story-wise. Uh, 
is when um uh is when vision easily picks it up vision just picks <laughs> um, what's cool about it because it, it instantly communicates to the audience that this is a person you can trust um and you know they they put it to get use later on in the movies so i actually took the time to google this topic and sure enough a number of answers i found confirmed what javon said one comic book geek on core gave this answer the hammer as seen in several occasions can think on its own it is the hammer that decides who is worthy to lift it it can be concluded that Mjolnir considers the current situation crisis and deems the most worthy present in the surrounding with the ability to yield it. In the party scene where the members of the Avengers were trying to lift the hammer, everyone failed because it was not a crisis but only a gag, and Thor, the original owner of Mjolnir, and the most worthy among them was there also. Okay, so this writer goes on to explain why Vision was probably able to lift it. He says, uh, when Vision was first quote-unquote born, all the Avengers were hostile to him. But he was a key element in destroying Ultron, and he needed to gain the trust of the Avengers. The hammer, as far as my understanding goes, sensed this and allowed Vision to lift itself, thus allowing Vision to gain the trust of the Avengers. End quote. Now, you would be surprised about how much debate I found on the internet about why Cap couldn't lift Thor's hammer. Well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. But I eventually had to pull myself out of the rabbit hole because I realized, why am I spending so much time on a bonus segment? See ya. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Oh.